0: Tonight we want to take up um, first principles of American Presbyterianism and um, to look a little bit at one of the important elements of that in the doctrine of the spirituality of the church. I've sent you several documents over the course of the day, The uh, one an excerpt from uh Robert Louis Dabney entitled On First Principles that we're going to start with. I'm going to r- review that with you. Then an article entitled Thirty-eight Years at Gilcomston. And I thought that title would so intrigue you and f- you are find it so attractive that you would think, Oh, why hadn't haven't I ever read of 38 Years at Gilcomston before? <laughs> it's a little bit of a odd uh, title. It's, but it's a reflection uh, by William Still on his life and ministry, a Scottish minister. He was a mentor both to um, Sinclair Ferguson and to um, uh, Alexan- um, Eric Alexander, had a remarkable ministry in this town of Gil- Gilcomston, And um, this article had a great impact on New Hope at its founding and uh, Still's conception of the biblical simplicity of the life of the church, which I thought would be useful. Then a a series of selections uh, from historic Reformed literature on the relationship uh, between church and state, Um, and then uh, two excerpts from Calvin's commentaries on the idea of the spirituality of the church, and then a modern-day uh, little piece from By Faith magazine, uh, From Kevin DeYoung. Young. Um, I will say that um, I came to understand this doctrine uh, very, very early on in my studies about the life of the church and to be fully persuaded of it. Uh, but even in the PCA, where we're constitutionally committed to it, um, I felt like a lone voice for a long time. I think the first speech that... Uh, I ever made on the floor of the General Assembly was against a proposal to cut one of the chief places in the book of church order where this matter is addressed um, out of the book of church order. Um, but uh, happily, it, it was uh, it was remarkable to me to see someone like Kevin DeYoung uh, write a little essay about it, commenting the doctrine, so that I feel like I'm in the middle of a, of a revival. <laughs> um but our book, our book of church order, our government of the church, uh, is set forth in its principles and in its um, the outline of its structures in the Bible, of course. But then uh, Presbyterians have tic- typically tried to um, um, schematize that into a, a book of church order. And our book of church order has... Um, Five parts. Um, It has um, an opening section uh, called the preface, and that's what we're going to be looking at largely tonight. We have the form of government, uh, and that's the fundamental structures of the government. We have the rules of discipline, uh, then we have the directory for worship, and Some concluding materials. Um, And we'll be looking at this over the next few weeks. Um, But we begin with um, first principles. And uh, that's the idea. You might think of it this way, biblically, that uh, the church is built on the uh, prophets and apostles. That is, there's a foundation to the church. There are first things that um, are critical And the rest of the superstructure, as it were, is built on to that. And in thinking about government, first principles are especially important. And uh, in the time that uh, our first American Book of Church Order was put together, as I mentioned last week, 1788 in Philadelphia, the U.S. Constitution was being framed. And by some of the same people, the Presbyterian Book of Church Order was being framed principally. John Witherspoon, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And and so um, these ideas were in the air about the importance of first principles with respect to government. Here in Virginia, um, for example, George Mason uh, authored the Virginia Declaration of Rights on June 12th in 1776, And here's one of the principles articulated there. No free government or the blessings of liberty can be preserved to any people, but by a firm adherence to justice, moderation, temperance, frugality, and virtue, and by frequent recurrence to first fundamental principles. In other words, for the health and good of a government, Mason thought, that the people themselves had to regularly remind themselves what the things of first importance are for a government to remain free, uh, to have the blessings of liberty, and so on. And I think that that is true with respect to uh, all governments and certainly church governments. We need to know and understand what the most fundamental principles are that help guide us with respect to questions that are, more far flung from those foundations and especially when they can get particularly complicated. Um, the piece I w- want to read to you now I've entitled on first principles. This is from an essay that Robert Louis Dabney r- wrote, uh, in the uh, during a, a great controversy that took place concerning the nature of the eldership in the 19th century. Um, and, um, Listen to what Dabney says. It strikes many Presbyterians with surprise that the General Assembly and our leading periodicals in this year, 1860, 150 years after the beginning of our church in America, should largely be occupied in discussing the question, what is Presbyterianism? They ask with displeasure, are fundamentals never to be settled among us? Is the Church never to be relieved of these debates, which thus agitate the settled foundations of our theory? We may answer to these indignant questions with an emphatic no. The good brethren who thus deplore these renewed discussions of first principles misconceive of the nature of the human mind and of free institutions. While man remains the creature that he is, Such discussions are to be expected and desired. Each generation must do its own thinking and learn for itself its own lessons in first truths and general principles. If we insist that this generation of Presbyterians shall hold our Father's principles on trust and by mere prescription, the result will be that they do not hold them sincerely at all. For, by the very reason that general principles do not lie on the surface, but are be, to be detected by an analysis, by analysis and induction, they are always in every science other than first appearance and first impressions would lead men to suppose. Hence, in every science, the true general principles are unpopular and paradoxical in the first unthinking view. Prior to this active investigation, it is, in astronomy, for example, the earth which seems to stand still and the heavenly bodies to move. In hydrostatics, it is the empty tube which seems to suck up the water. In theology, it is the Pelagian view which commends itself to the natural mind instead of the Calvinistic. So, in church government, the actual first truths of the New Testament are not those which our unreflecting impressions would lead us to suppose. Hence, each generation must correct those first impressions for itself and be led down to the true principles by the laborious conclusion, collision of debate and investigation. Beside this, the human mind loves the concrete. The labor of abstraction and correct generalization is most irksome to it. Yet it is certain that all general truths that are properly such are abstractions. Hence, most minds never trouble themselves to obtain independently to an intelligent view of such truths, but adopt the practical results of them with a sort of imperfect comprehension and conviction. And of many who make such first truths the regulative sources of their practical opinions... The general views are more or less vague, and their agreement with each other in them is only approximate. Now we cheerfully grant that both of these classes may be practically very good and honest Presbyterians, and that their detailed opinions and conduct may be much better than the general principles of their theory. But it is nonetheless true that the general principles sooner or later work out their logical details in the public mind and that it is the men that hold these abstractions, a Plato, a Augustine, a Calvin, a Descartes, a Jefferson, a Calhoun, correctly or incorrectly, who in the issue determine the practical opinions of their fellow men for good or evil. The practical opinions can only be kept correct by perpetual recurrence to first truths. Hence, we must expect the perpetual agitation of these first truths. It indicates not, indeed, the perfect health of the body ecclesiastical, a a condition not to be expected while Christians are imperfect, but the sanative, in other words, healthful tendencies. Well, uh, I thought that was such a remarkable uh, analysis the first time I ever heard it, and I have now read it (laughs) over and over again many times in teaching and remarking on it and still find it a remarkable analysis. And I think it is very much true that, and particularly why in the Christian church we're not uh, happy just to have uh, general views. We want people to be well rooted in the principles of Scripture and we are about the work in each generation of trying to bring folk to conviction with respect to those things. And These abstractions are absolutely critical to practical living. That's the point that Daphne's getting at. Uh, But if you buy in thoughtlessly to the wrong abstractions, it will undermine uh, your practice. Well, let me pause there for a moment and see if anybody has a question or a comment or a reflection on that point. All right, I'll press on. Um, the, uh, American Presbyterians made a great contribution to thinking on this subject. Uh, I think, in fact, it might be said that that's the American, the American Presbyterian contribution to the history of the church is precisely on the doctrine of the church and its, um, government and discipline. And w- one man that was very important in all of this was a pastor, uh, Called Stuart Robinson, he was also a seminary professor, and he reminded us um, when he uh, spoke about uh, the Book of Church Order of his day. This was in 1789. That um, the uh, our Book of Church Order is not a um, essay on church government, but it is a set of rules in government and discipline. Um, And its chief aim is that there should be definitions, forms, and rules in a compressed, compact form as clearly as can be put. And that has been the goal, I think, for uh, Presbyterian books of church order. Um, And so um, it is spare. The language is um, concise, uh, often full of ideas, Uh, But here's a point now with respect to interpreting our book and this question of first principles. Robinson put it this way. Indeed, this is one of the great advantages of a book of church order, that it so clearly brings out the doctrinal principle involved in the provisions for the administration and government of the church. The surest And shortest method of getting at the meaning and purpose of a law is to get clearly before the mind the principle upon which the law rests. I think that's another um, very important observation, that if you can see the connection between the principle and the law, you'll have a much clearer understanding of what the law requires and why. well, what I want to do, the last thing I sent out was a document called First Principles of American Presbyterianism as drawn from her constitutional documents. Do you all have access to that? Were you able to get it? And um, Let's see, how will I do this? Um, yeah. I, give, I've got it, Dave. All right. Um I can put it on the screen. I'd prefer not to, because it distracts me. But if only a few of you have it, it might be, make more sense for me to put it on the screen. How many don't have it, have access to it? I'm not hearing anything. All right, then we'll press on as we are. What I've done here, um, if you look at our Book of Church Order you'll see that it has a um, preface, and the preface is in three parts. Uh, The first is entitled The King and Head of the Church. The second is uh, called Preliminary Principles, and the third, The Constitution Defined. Um, The... uh, Preliminary principles, I'll say more about in a minute, but these are uh, preliminary principles that you you get the idea. Here, the framers are saying, if you want to know what this government's about, here are the principles that it's built upon. Now, those principles um, are picked up as well with language elaborating upon it, in our Book of Church Order in other places, and also in our doctrinal standards. And what I've done in this document is arranged the um, preliminary principles with other excerpts from other parts of our Constitution so that you have the main ideas articulated throughout all in one place in a relatively logical order. And that's what I want to review with you for uh, the rest of our time. And so um, the the first section is called The King and Head of the Church. And what I'd like to say is that they could have also entitled this The First of All the First Principles. This is the bedrock. This is the bottom line. Um, and it comes um, not from uh, our first American book of church order, but rather it comes all the way uh, back from uh, 1645, uh, the Westminster Directory for church government. And you can see how um, people sometimes think of church government and debates about church government as being an entirely secondary issue. Uh, We'll see it isn't of the essence of the church. But on the other hand, the Westminster Divines especially the Scottish theologians, were zealous for church government not because they were zealous for government, but because they were zealous for the kingship of Jesus in the church. Getting the government that he has appointed uh, is absolutely crucial to acknowledging properly the reign of Christ in the church, and that's what this first section sets out. Uh, They say, and so our Americans adopted this into their book as its foundation. Jesus Christ, upon whose shoulders the government rests, whose name is called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase and whose government and peace there shall be no end, who sits on the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and establish it, with judgment and justice from henceforth and forever having all power given unto him in heaven and on earth by the father who raised him from the dead and set him at the right, his own right hand far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every other name and every name that is named not only in this world but in that which is to come has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over, over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all, he being ascended far up above the heavens, that he might fill all things, received gifts for his church, and gave all offices necessary for the edification of his church and the perfecting of his saints. That's a remarkable uh, summary. Uh I think there are at least 20 scripture texts included. There's almost no original language here. It's just stringing together passages from scripture uh, in a beautiful statement of um, the first of all first principles, that is that Jesus is the king and head of the church. And he is uh, king and head of the church, particularly as mediator. That's what the... uh, Uh, material goes on to say, Jesus, the mediator, the sole priest, prophet, king, savior, and head of the church, contains in himself, by way of eminence, all the offices of the church and has many of their names attributed to him in the scripture. He is apostle, teacher, pastor, minister, bishop, and the only lawgiver in Zion so that all of the offices of the church, properly speaking, flow out of Jesus, the head of the church. And all of them must be understood in relationship to him. It continues, Since the ascension of Jesus Christ to heaven, he is present with the church by his word and spirit, and all the benefits of his offices are effectually applied by the Holy Spirit. It belongs to his majesty from the throne of glory to rule and teach the church through his word and spirit by the ministry of men, thus immediately exercising his own authority and enforcing his own laws unto the edification and establishment of the kingdom. So, do you see... The offices of the church then are understood as instruments in Christ's hand, the way by which he currently rules. And notice, uh, apostle, teacher, pastor, prophet, priest, king, these these are not uh, um, ministries of Christ from long ago. These are current ministries of our Savior watching over and caring for and building up his church. And through the word and the spirit, the officers of the church then are his instruments uh, to teach and to um, uh, enforce the way of life that Christ has set up so that his kingdom will be built up and established. So it continues. Christ is king has given to his church officers, oracles, and ordinances, and especially has ordained therein his system of doctrine, government, discipline, and worship, all of which are either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary inference may be deduced therefrom, and to which things he commands that nothing be added and that from them naught be taken away. So there's the critical point. All of the uh, uh, means that Christ has established for the building up of his church are rooted in the scripture. His word, which is for the life and upbuilding building of his people, um, The and we can't go beyond that word, we can't add to it, Neither can we take anything away from it. Now our confession of faith adds here that in uh, six of the confession that there are some things belonging to the government and the worship of the church that are to be ordered by the light of nature. Uh, that is to say, uh, by human common sense, uh, always according to the general principles of the word. Um, the, um, uh, the older books of church order all used to be footnoted by Scripture, the same way our Confession of Faith and Catechisms are now, to show you how they're founded in God's Word. Um, unfortunately, uh, we don't do that anymore with uh, books of church order. I think that's a, a great, uh, defect myself, um. And, um, when the PCA was formed, the, uh, I thought I had made note of this, but I guess I didn't. Um, when the PCA was formed, they were actually, uh, the assembly actually appointed that someone would, um, draft footnotes. Um, oh yeah, here it is. Um, for the book of church order to show how it was rooted in scripture. And uh, they set to work on it. Uh, but um, they hadn't finished by 1976, three years later. Uh, by 1978, they still hadn't, hadn't finished and they wanted to be extended. And by that time, the assembly lost patience with the project and said uh, they dismissed the committee with thanks. Um, I'm sorry? Um, Well, uh, I think that was a serious mistake myself. I I think having the footnotes preserves the self-consciousness that this isn't just us making things up as it goes along, but that it's rooted in um, Christ's word. But the point of telling that little story was to say there were a couple of texts from first Corinthians that appeared over and over again in the footnotes <laughs> and uh, it's let all things be done for edification and let all things be done decently and in order <laughs> and that was the warrant for a, a huge swath of the, of the the old books of church order and of course uh, that's a perfectly just warrant um, uh, as our confession of faith reminds us that there are so what time you worship, for example, that needs to be a matter of government, uh, means to say that if we're going to have joint, uh, concerted effort, uh, uh, we have to have somebody decide when it's going to start. And um, so the elders of the church are given that responsibility. There's no scripture for that, except let all things be done for edification and let it be done decently and in order and so on. Um, Well, the, um, so, Christ, the King, the Spirit of God, animating uh, the Word of God, guiding and directing um, and uh, in a way that's entirely sufficient for the needs of the Church. Let me pause there and see if uh there's any question or comment? Can, can I add my amen, Dave? Yes. Um,
1: I, I love this point that you're making, and I think it's so important for us to understand that this is a way of honoring Christ, that this is not diminishing him. Because I think those who want to argue for more expansive, even all-encompassing role for the church in the world, see it as a way well-intentioned of honoring Christ and defending or taking a stand for his kingship over all things, and it's certainly true that he's king over all things, but as king over all things, his is the prerogative to establish a church in the world for a limited purpose, with particular means to establish that purpose. So we're not diminishing Christ, or to use that tired old phrase, we're not putting Christ in a box or something like right. that. This is a way of actually taking a stand for it and not whittling away at his authority or, or the scope of his sovereignty. Not at all. This is, um, this is a way of honoring him. So I love this point.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Paul. Well said. Well, this brings us to the preliminary principles. Um, These principles um, uh, are from the form of government that was adopted in 1788 in Philadelphia. They were originally included in the Book of Church Order for the Southern Presbyterian Church when it came into existence. However, uh, in Later years, they were dropped. uh, And probably to the degree that the Southern Church was becoming more liberal, they became less tied to the idea that there were foundational principles that had to be adhered to in order for the government of the church to be sound. When the PCA was formed in 1973, these preliminary principles were restored uh, to their rightful place. And um, there's been a few uh, glitches along the way where they got amended and amended poorly, and they had to be amended back to capture. But in any case, uh, so you see the italicized text, this is the, the church describing what it's doing. The Presbyterian Church of America in setting forth a form of government founded upon and agreeable to the word of God reiterates the following great principles that have governed the formation of the plan. So now here we get to these points where I'm weaving in uh, the preliminary principle itself as well as other portions of the form of government and um, uh, some of the points of our confession of faith. Um, So let me um, begin. Point number one, God alone is Lord of the conscience. Now here, what I've done is taken uh, the, the preliminary principle which in our current form is a little bit garbled because (laughs) people thought they were clarifying it. And what I've done is I've gone back to the Confession of Faith and taken the Confessions language and stuck it in here because it's uh, far more elegant and uh, concise. God alone is the Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which in anything, contrary to his word or beside it, if matters of faith or worship, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. And then this is the concluding words from the first preliminary principle. Therefore, the rights of private judgment and all matters that respect religion, are universal and inalienable. So this is uh, a uh, the first principle articulated and one that has been uh, precious, especially to Presbyterians. Uh, we're the only, uh, I believe, our confession of faith is the only confession out of the Reformation and post-Reformation period that has a chapter on liberty of conscience. And you can see how important it was to Presbyterians um, so uh, the point is God's word is rules the conscience and uh, that um, nothing contrary to the word or beside the word in matters of faith and worship can be impressed upon anyone um, yes
2: um, you might as well be singing those words To me, that's how they sound. (laughs) Uh, How glorious it is that the uh, Book of Church Order, the doctrines uh, of the denomination, begin with the first and most important principle that Christ alone is head of his church. And then the first statement after that, which follows necessarily from it, as you said in your series on Christian liberty, is that uh, he has created the mind free. Yes. uh, Subject free for the purpose of being subject to christ and no one else including uh including the um the civil government uh except as he ordains and including the uh his own church so i just wow uh amen
0: (laughs) amen yeah that the I, i i'm not much for uh shouting amen in church um When I was little, uh, we were in a big Presbyterian church. My folks sat in the same place in the front all the time. And uh, there was a little man in front, and uh, he was bald, and I could only see the dome of his head just above the seat because he was kind of small and slouched down. And I was not a happy churchgoer in those days. And the least happy part of the service to me, was the pastoral prayer. Uh, And the pastor of that church at that time was given to long, flowery, Victorian sentences. And I thought it was almost unendurable. And that little man, every once in a while, would shout out, Amen! Well, the only thing that I knew Amen to mean was, the prayer is over. And I thought, he was trying to tell the pastor, cut it off, man, cut it off. We've had enough. <laughs> and I thought, why didn't that pastor listen to him? So I was utterly betrayed years later when I learned he was actually egging him on. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, thats that, I, I do feel like saying amen every time I hear that first preliminary principle. <laughs> um, All right, so, nonetheless, now here we have a qualification. In perfect consistency with the above principle, every Christian church or union or association of particular churches is entitled to declare the terms of admission into its communion and the qualifications of its ministers and members, as well as the whole system of its internal government, which Christ has appointed. In the exercise of this right, It may, notwithstanding, err in making the terms of communion either too lax or too narrow, yet even in this case it does not infringe on the liberty and rights of others, but it makes only proper use of its own. Now this uh, principle um, may seem almost self-evident to you, but this was a shocking principle in 1788. For thousands of years Christianity had always been associated with the civil government and if the civil government then appointed a discipline and worship and imposed it by law that meant that if you didn't believe that's what the Bible taught, you were persecuted Um, sometimes relatively minor persecution you weren't allowed to call your buildings churches you you were called non-conformists and that's but other times quite terrible persecution but now all of a sudden american presbyterians and other christians found themselves in a place where the civil government was no longer going to determine what the religion of the land was and so for the first time they're framing a form of government where people will voluntarily attach themselves to it. And they're trying to explain, because they uh, believe in liberty of conscience and the right of private judgment, they're trying to explain, look, if we make rules that we think are Christ's rules for the church and require people to adhere to them, we are not violating anybody's conscience because you can just go and be a part of some group that thinks the way you do. You see, you have that liberty. So they're claiming the right to have a form of discipline to require teachers to believe certain things, but it's voluntarily exercised. If you want to be a teacher among us, You have to believe these sorts of things are the things that the Bible teaches. But it doesn't violate your conscience because you're free to go be a teacher in some other place, if you will. Do you see what... There's a lot more to that proposition that may be uh, uh, available on the face of it. So they continue. Truth is in order to godliness. And the great touchstone of truth is its tendency to promote holiness according to our Savior's rule. By their fruits you shall know them. No opinion can either be more pernicious or more absurd than that which brings truth and falsehood upon a level, that is, brings them together, and represents it as of no consequence what a person's opinions are. On the contrary, there is an inseparable connection between faith and practice, truth and duty. Otherwise, it would be of no consequence to discover truth or to embrace it. That's preliminary principle four, and then I just followed right on with the next. Thus, it is necessary to make effectual provision that all who are admitted as officers of the church be sound in faith. Nevertheless, there are truths and forms with respect to which People of good character and principles may differ, and thus it is the duty of private Christians and Christian denominations to exercise mutual forbearance toward one another. So, um, thus they're saying that because of the relationship between faith and practice, truth and duty, um, the, uh, the teachers of the church must be those who adhere to the church's doctrine. Now here, Presbyterians differed from some others. The members of the church do not have to adhere to the confessional stance of the church. That's because the confessional stance of the church is, as it were, the curriculum for the school of Christ. The teachers must have mastered that curriculum, but others, disciples, disciples, learners in the school of Christ, would have different degrees of adherence as a part of that learning. So long as a person is peaceably willing to listen and be instructed, if they don't yet believe, they're not cast out, um, but are understood to be those who are uh, hopefully going to be progressing. But that's the reason for the difference uh, between teachers and rulers, and other servants, and and so on, and uh, the place of the congregation. And the fact is that, so too, at the end of this, they notice that uh, Christian denominations may differ on things that don't have to do with the essence of the Christian faith, and that they ought to exercise mutual forbearance toward one another. Um, Bonnie, or Bill, or
3: here's the question that I had because that's a good distinction about who has to adhere to it Um, because I have been in a church where there are church members who don't agree with certain principles that are adhered to for that particular it was a PCA church for that particular PCA church and they were pretty vocal about it is that something that's Acceptable, or is that something that is a disciplinary action, or, or should it be? Or I, I've just wondered because it, it, nothing was ever done that I saw.
0: If it, if the manner of a person's holding something becomes a, a threat to the peace or purity of the church, then they could be subject to discipline. So, for example, um, we have had uh, members at New Hope who were not yet persuaded of infant baptism. So long as they were willing to continue to hear the scripture case on the subject, and so long as they were willing not to, every time something came up, to be trying to show how sinful it is to baptize babies, and uh, so long as they weren't um, in some way trying to maliciously spread that view, then they're perfectly welcome to be part of the congregation. And in fact, I think in almost every case, uh, I don't know that we have any folk anymore who hold that view, but I, I think in almost every case, they ended up being persuaded and having their children baptized. Does that make sense? What's that? And Bill and I are one of those who initially joined,
3: not believing that the baptism was the way. But that, thats exactly the issue, and that—but the person that I have heard say it over and over again in this previous church that we were in
0: said would comment every time. About yes, they just
3: love believers' baptism, and 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 I finally said, you know. I
0: think you need to go talk with the session about this if you really have a problem with it. Right, right. All right. Good point, Connie. Um, So um, now here we get to a statement of the purpose of the church. Um, The church which the Lord Jesus Christ has erected in this world For the gathering and perfecting of his saints is his visible kingdom of grace and is one and the same in all ages. There's the point about the church being Catholic that we talked about last week. That's from our book of church order, chapter one, paragraph two. That's the way uh, the matters are numbered. Members of this visible church Catholic are all those persons in every nation together with their children who make profession of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and promise submission to his uh, laws. So there our book asserts that the visible church is one and it's worldwide and it's made of all who profess faith in Christ and promise submission to his laws together with their children. Presbyterians believe the scripture teaches that children are members of the church by birthright. That doesn't mean they're saved by birthright. It doesn't mean they're regenerate from the time they're brought into the world. But they are members of the church, meaning they are born into the school of Christ. They are under the discipline of the church and are to be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Um, The... um, and that is, in fact, a part of the reason why Presbyterians think that baptism is appropriate for infants as a sign of their initiation to a life of discipleship. Uh, they don't choose that. They're born into it. Um, but we'll get to baptism a little later. This visible unity, and I think this is one of the most wonderful uh parts of the early part of our book of church who are showing the wonderful, generous spirit of Presbyterians. This visible unity of the body of Christ, though obscured, is not destroyed by its division into different denominations. But all of these, which maintain the word and sacraments in their fundamental integrity, are to be recognized as true branches of the church of Jesus Christ. And that, that's a great privilege to think that wherever Christ is preached, believed in, and followed in according to the essence of word and sacrament, that we're part of the visible church with those folk, even though we may differ uh, significantly on some other matters. Now, here uh, we've come to... Um, In fact, I've put in adding several parts of the preliminary principles and the Book of Church Order together here. And this, um, so we have uh, two sections from Book of Church Order, Chapter Three. The sole function of the Church as a kingdom and government distinct from the civil commonwealth are to proclaim, to administer, and to enforce the law of Christ revealed in the scriptures. There you have it put. Now, this next section, four, this is the part somebody was trying to strike that in my first speech at the General Assembly was opposing it. This um, uh, comes from uh, uh, James Henley Thornwell in um, one of his writings. He was a, an extraordinary um, seminary professor at Columbia in the Uh, 19th century. Here's how it's put. The power of the church is exclusively spiritual. That of the state includes the exercise of force. The constitution of the church derives from divine revelation. The constitution of the state must be determined by human reason and the course of providential events. The church has no right to construct or modify a government for the state, and the state has no right to frame a creed or polity for the church. They are, as planets, moving in concentric circles, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now here follows preliminary principle number one, the concluding sentence, which seemed to me more suitable here. No religious constitution should be supported by the civil power further than may be necessary for the protection and security equal and common to all others. And now from the Confession of Faith, uh, striking language, synods and councils are to handle and conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs, which concern the commonwealth, unless by way of humble petition, in cases extraordinary, or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience, if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. So there's a statement of the understanding of the nature of civil government compared to church government and the um, uh, importance of having a clear conception that they have different ends, they have different means, and they should not be uh, uh, mixed up. Uh, the church should, as a church, now we're going to talk about, this is uh, one of the early clear statements of the doctrine of the spirituality of the church, all the way back to the Westminster Assembly. The slander against the doctrine is what is invented in the South uh, because of slavery. And um, that's just not true. Uh, it was 200 years old by the time uh, slavery was uh, the crisis that it became in the United States. Um, it was not at all associated with that particularly. But the point is that, um, sorry?
2: Me. Um may I ask a question if you could talk?
0: Let me just finish that sentence, Steve, and then I'll, I'll stop. Uh, um... I want to just be clear, Um, it's the church as church through its official capacity, whatever kind of government it has. So, for example, it would be through our session. We don't have any right. uh, 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 Let me just give you an, an example straight out. I can preach, and our session can certainly uphold, the idea that abortion is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. I can not preach that all Christians ought to be in favor of packing the Supreme Court with anti-abortion jurists. Or I can't preach that uh, there ought to be a constitutional amendment with respect to abortion. Or I can't preach it shouldn't have anything to do with the federal judiciary or the federal constitution. It ought to be part of criminal law in the States and all Christians ought to support that. Those are all political questions with respect to which Christians may differ and I in the session have no right to intrude on those questions. We'd be infringing the liberty of Christians to decide those political questions themselves. So that's one of the essential points of what we're trying to argue here. But Steve, go ahead.
2: Very good examples. Um, I'm wondering uh, if you have other examples of what would be a correct humble petition in cases extraordinary or by way of advice. When is it okay? What is that sentence talking about um, at the intersection between uh, church governance and civil authority?
0: Yes, um, I, I, I'm gonna. Uh, I'll take that up. I'm not going to, I'm clearly not going to (laughs) finish. I was considerably off in my estimation of the time here. So we're going to come back to this subject next week. I will send you all what I think, and I hope not proudly since our session was responsible for it, but um, I'll send you what I think one of the clearest examples of this, of what it would look like. Um, And, because we're not going to really get into the spirituality until next week, uh, but can is that okay? Can you wait?
2: Yes, that's a great.
0: Thing. All right. Um. Well, I'm going to stop, <laughs> um, and we'll come back to this. Um. let me take a minute or two for questions about anything we've covered thus far tonight. Um, anyone, a concern or, um, something not clear.
1: Hey Dave, I, I had a language question this is, uh, maybe this is something you're going to cover next week, but, um, later in chapter three of the book of church order, um, I guess it's three, six, and it comes up in another spot too. But it says that the exercise of ecclesiastical power, whether joint or several, has the divine sanction. I'm just curious what several means in that context. I just haven't
0: heard it used that way before. Yeah, it's a very old usage, and it, it appears several times in the book, and it's worth bringing up now. Um, Colin, I'm glad you did. Uh, the several exercise of power is when Officers are acting individually, and the joint exercise of power is when they act uh, in, in a in a court, for example, a session meeting. So um, we're go- the, in this document in in a minute or two. We're gonna see that we are saying that. Um, uh well I can't tell you how to get it cuz my number but if you look at um down for a paragraph beginning at ecclesiastical jurisdiction in the document that we're working on it says ecclesiastical jurisdiction is not a several but a joint power to be exercised by elders and courts so there what they're saying is that ecclesiastical jurisdiction is not individually exercised. And that's what separates us from uh, uh, um, uh, Episcopal churches or the Roman church, where bishops have ecclesiastical authority in and of themselves. Presbyterianism is saying it's not a several power, but it's a joint power. But then it does acknowledge, as here that um, the joint power can be exercised severally, but the elder is never acting on behalf of himself. He's acting on behalf of the session. So, for example, um, it's the session that governs the Lord's table, but Paul acts severally, in administrating at the table on behalf of the session. But it's always a a fundamentally joint power, not a several power. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, and that's a good example. I think that's really very helpful. Okay.
0: All right. Thank you. Good question. Other uh, comments or questions, anyone? Well, I'm sorry that I miscalculated considerably, but I'll I'll figure a way to to uh, cut on some other part of our endeavor because it's I, I probably should have planned to take more time on this because if we get this, we'll be a long way toward you having a con- proper conception of the government of the church and. Some of the more detailed elements, that's what the book's on your shelf for. You go look it up if you need to understand it. But, um, all right, thank you so much for being here. Let me pray for us. Father, we do rejoice that Jesus Christ is the King and Head of the church, that He is building that church through His Word and Spirit, but that He's pleased to use instruments like uh, frail men in uh, that ministry and is pleased to gather and perfect his elect through word and spirit and the ministry of the church. And we pray that uh, he would be glorified in that and we pray that we would be uh, well uh, fitted to embrace our part in the building of the church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.